For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. Very exciting news. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Labour Party, Sarah Everard and White Privilege. So the Labour conference has come to an end. Keir Starmer has set out his pitch to the nation Tom, you suggested earlier this week that Labour needed to be put out of its misery. <laughs> what made you say that? Well, it was just so dreadful, wasn't it? I mean, when you're, the main takeaways from your speech are that there was a lot of hecklers and it went on a bit too long and there was a weird digression about robots. It definitely didn't go particularly well, mm. <laughs> did it? And, you know, this isn't just about the contents of the speech, which typically for Keir Starmer were so incredibly mind-numbing as to be difficult to work out what he was saying at various different times. But even the kind of prospect of all of the heckling, the obvious kind of aggro that, had, you know, you saw in the conference hall, but also yeah. been in the run-up to um, this big speech itself, you're just kind of reminded of what a tedious sort of bourgeois spat the Labour Party is at the moment. Now, for all the people involved, you know, there's issues that people care about, party democracy, fair mm. enough, questions of a minimum wage, questions of, you know, Starmer's honesty, really, yeah. in relation to the selectorate and him signing up to basically being continuity Corbyn on a policy level and not matching up to that in relation to nationalisation or any other kinds of issues. All that I completely understand. But this just feels like a completely pointless spectacle in relation to the rest of the nation and particularly in relation to the voters this party was set up to represent. Mm. Uh, you know, it's an old cliche that the Labour Party is supposed to be this coalition of Hartlepool and Hampstead, you know, the kind of working class um, in the former Red Wall, but also the kind of liberal left intelligentsia and all the rest of it. But I think what we see at Labour Party conference this week and um, what we've seen over the past decade or more really is that it's increasingly just a coalition between Hampstead and Hackney and the nice gentrified parts of Hackney, mm. if you like. It's basically between two bourgeois factions um, who increasingly resemble two bald men fighting over a comb. I mean, there's obviously so much white-hot intensity as to who's going to control the Labour Party, its internal machinations, all the rest of it. But it just feels increasingly irrelevant in terms of the rest of the population, especially when it comes to those voters they're supposed to win back. I mean, people are talking about the question of uh, electability and all the rest of it. But even if Starmer somehow managed to edge the party closer towards the Tories in the polls and all the rest of it. The fact that the Tories still have a double-digit poll lead over them amongst C2DE, which is a rough you know, equivalent for working-class voters, none of them seem to be recognising that. And as we've talked about, if anything, they were both kind of collaborators <laughs> in the last <laughs> general election in terms of destroying that voter base of support what in what feels like for good. So yeah, it just feels like for all the discussions about who's going to save the Labour Party and all the rest of it, you just think, why not just give up? at this point, and, even and though that, it will limp on, of course. And that, that Tory poll lead is, is maintained despite the petrol crisis, the energy crisis, the economic crisis, the COVID crisis. It, it seems kind of Labour is not making any inroads at all. Ella, what did you make of um, 
Starmer's speech, did you manage to stay awake for it? <laughs> I had to watch it in sections because it was really long and he spoke really slowly. Mm. And the, the a lot of standing clapping was <laughs> embarrassing. It was embarrassing because the cameras kept cutting to the audience and you either had kind of activists being like, oh, we must clap now. Or you had all these kind of strained smiles on the faces of his MPs mm. who mm. were kind of like, you could feel the fact that even his biggest cheerleaders knew that this was a really, you know, uninspiring and boring speech. I mean, the fact that he went on and on about his dad and his mum and, uh, you know, his background, not even that there anything particularly interesting about them, but kept saying, I learned this from my dad. It was, it was so hollow and it was actually cringy in moments. I mean, you, you said about the robots. That was actually one of the more interesting bits. My because it, up yeah, because it was like, <laughs> oh, something interesting medicine, nothing to do with anything you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the incredible bit was, when uh, he made an apology to voters who they'd um, lost at the last election, he said, thank you to those of, who stayed along. And to those we lost, I want to say, you know, what we said to you in the last election was we didn't mention patriotism and we should have talked about how a credible plan and Brexit. And anyway, and then it was like he did not say the B word yeah. and he would not talk about Brexit and he would not admit that. Everyone and their mum knows that the, one of the main reasons why those red wall voters and lots of working class voters turned against them in the last election was because of Brexit and because of not just the Brexit vote and their position on that, but their betrayal and condemnation of Brexit voters. And to the fact that he, you know, you don't want to end up sounding like a broken record, do you? Because, okay, it was 2016. Mm. And in many ways, the conversation has moved on, but also in many ways, it hasn't. And throughout that whole speech, he, you know, made a nod to Blair about a joke about, did you want to say education three times? And everyone's ha ha ha, you know, so cozy and disgusting. Um, but, <laughs> but, and would make your blood boil. But there was no mention of any kind of the fundamental flaw in the Labour Party, which, as Tom said in your piece, unites the Corbynites and the Starmerites, is that they hate Brexit and they definitely don't want to talk about it and they won't be able to move forward from that. Well, there, there were some Labour MPs who were very keen to talk about Brexit. Um, <clears throat> Hillary Benn, uh, yeah, for instance. Unless, and they're, unless they're trying David, to re <laughs> exactly, even David, yeah, re saying the we, we should, they should fight the next election on, on Brexit, not really recognising where the last one went wrong. Uh, John Burko was at the um, conference. Standing ovation and cheers. I yeah. mean, that tells you a lot about the what the Labour Party's activist priorities are. The, you know, the, the other thing about it is that you had this fuss around Angela Rayner using the word scum and yeah. all that kind of silliness that I mentioned in my column this week. But there's this real sense within the Labour Party about an obsession with identity that we've talked about before. So either you have Angela Rayner being like, oh, you know what we need to do? We need to use street language. And, mm. you know, I, I talk <laughs> like this and, you know, have having a fag outside the conference looking like she's a real person. And then in the same time, in an interview with the Sunday Times saying, oh, well, actually, nobody really cares about the fact that, sir, that Keir's a sir. And, you know, we're not, authenticity isn't that important, really. And then saying, well, Boris Johnson's an Etonian posh boy. And then John Burkow walks in the conference and everyone's <laughs> on their feet. It's like, make your mind up. Do yeah. you think that voters care about authenticity and identity or do they actually care about politics? Are you obsessed with it or are you not? Mm. And, I mean, there was one big kind of identity question that was really hanging over the conference. This seemed to be raised every single day in the media. And that was uh, Labour's inability or to decide whether women have cervixes or not. It's, it's amazing that this is still haunting them, that they couldn't come up with some formulation, even just to kind of hedge it, you know, yeah. in some way, shape or form. It's really, really striking. Every single Labour shadow cabinet minister from David Lammy and all the rest of it are kind of offering these increasingly kind of torturous 
arguments. They just implode on contact, don't they? As soon as you mention the C word and mm. they can't say anything. They can't deal with it. And it's interesting as well because, especially for the Starmerites and if we want to call them that, if they deserve an it label at all, um, <laughs> you know, the, the whole point is uh, electability. Rather. I mean, that was his pitch completely. And that's why people are getting behind him. And so you see these moves on questions of patriotism, like you were saying in this very kind of um, superficial sort of way, on questions of defence, crime, mm. you know, these kinds of ways in which we need to be where the median voter is at, kind of all very classic sort of Blairite stuff. And yet on a question like this, where the vast majority of the public do not understand this discussion, let alone yeah. you know, the sort of <laughs> substance of it, they cut, they have to dig in. It's really, really strange. It's just on this, it's this kind of suicidal attachment to the, this identity politics. They're happy to jet, jettison everything else or really kind of double down on certain issues, even if it upsets um, parts of their own party. But on this particular issue, again, they're really united. And it was interesting as well. Not that we should like fetishize kind of competence and slickness and all the rest of it. But it is just really striking how across the Labour Party and across the political class, arguably anyway, just how dull all mm. of them are. Like they, they're in speeches, you know, even in just in presentation. I mean, the jokes were atrocious. Like that one about um, level up, you can't fill even up. fill up. You know, and, his little, and silence. There yeah. was silence. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, open, I wouldn't open with that one. But. Know, yeah. It was all that, you know, he made that joke about my dad was a toolmaker and so was Boris Johnson as he leans forward, you know, as he does. Yeah. I mean, the, both the gags and the delivery made Theresa May look like Richard Pryor. I mean, it was absolutely <laughs> incredible. And so, you know, not to, again, sort of fetishize the kind of slick presentation of the sort of more new labor years or whatever. But, you know, this lot in comparison to them look like pygmies mm -hmm. than anything else. So that is, that was quite striking this week. As well. Absolutely. First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need issue. It's the easiest and best way to make your creative ideas come to life and to share them everywhere you want them to be seen. Unless you're using Issue, it can be a real pain when you're trying to share your work. Whatever you've made, a flyer, an annual report, a product catalogue, the trouble often starts when you want to post it on your website and then share it on Twitter and Instagram and then send it to your contacts. Every time you want to post it somewhere new, you have to reformat it, resize it, re-download and re-upload it. With Issue, you can get rid of all of that hassle. Issue is the all-in-one platform you can use to create and distribute beautiful digital content. There's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative work in an easy-to-view way on every single device. You can make something once and distribute it everywhere without reformatting. Your content is already optimized for engagement and is ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use, like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Issue is perfect for creators, marketers, designers, and anyone who wants to make content that stands out. You can start using Issue for free, but I'd really recommend their premium features that give a more customized experience. So get started with Issue today for free, or if you sign up for a premium account, you'll get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use the promo code spiked that's issuu.com slash podcast and use the promo code spiked at the checkout for your free account or for 50% off your premium account that's issue.com slash podcast with the promo code spiked
we should talk about one of the kind of tragedies that um one of the year's biggest tragedies i guess um has thankfully found a resolution uh wayne cousins the uh, police officer who was found guilty of kidnapping raping and murdering sarah everard has been sentenced uh to life in prison this week um what have we made of the kind of discussion around the sarah everard case because it seems to be made into a bigger thing not just about this one horrific tragedy, but it seems that a lot of people say it tells us about our society, about misogyny in society, about women's safety. I mean, Ella, what have you made of that kind of discussion? Well, the important thing is that what happened to Sarah Everard and indeed what Wayne Cousins planned is really specific. So the part of the kind of gruesome horror of it, that of the details that we found out um, this week in his sentencing is that he used his position of authority as a police officer to arrest her, you know, in front of people. I mean, it wasn't there was uh, it wasn't some kind of stereotypical grab in the bushes kind of thing. It was in in public. He'd planned to do this under the guise of COVID regulations. Used handcuffs. You know, she would have believed as and most normal people would have that he was a police officer and that he was doing his job and that she was going to get brought to a police station it's horrendous it says something very specific about that individual raises questions about why the police didn't manage to pick up on him having exposed himself several times um you know rumors about him being labeled rapey wayne among his colleagues very serious things that someone should have asked questions about and obviously his behavior has escalated to the point in which for his own sexual perversions he's murdered someone but that this is not you cannot extrapolate out from that to a conversation about all men. And that has, you know, it's like a tortured argument now saying that. You've had uh, this week and last week, Sadiq Khan out saying there is an epidemic of violence against women, saying that we have to, um, you know, raise the level of sex education, which I find really disgusting, actually. The, you know, the, the ignorance behind the argument that Wayne Cousins or sick individuals like him just didn't really know about mm. how to treat women nicely or they didn't they didn't know about etiquette or you know they they needed a few consent classes it's a complete misunderstanding of what happens when men commit violence against women that it is about an act of overpowering it is a, an assault in defiance of all normal behavior and they know what they're doing is wrong so there's a really there's it's like gesture politics to kind of suggest this but more importantly you know We've mentioned this before when the case first broke about the fact that they, when you look at the numbers in relation to violence against women, that the vast, vast majority of assaults and indeed murders happen in a domestic abuse setting. So there's this whole stranger danger aspect of this is wildly overblown. But if you have as a consequence of Sarah Everard's murder, more women going out on the street and being afraid of mm. the imaginary Wayne cousins out there, that's a problem for women's freedom. That is not a good position to be in. And it's as bad for feminists to perpetuate that fear as it is for police officers to come out and say, oh, that skirt's a bit short or, oh, do you have a rape alarm in your bag? If you make women change their behavior off of the back of one, of not just one, but off of a man or men who are predatory, that's an assault on our freedom as much as actually the the assault on Sarah Everard. Tom, I mean, what, what do you make of this? It's become a regular trope in, I suppose, many political discussions where one extremely awful thing happens that every reasonable person can agree is evil. And yet that gets extrapolated as to say something about society in general. I mean, what do you make of that? Well, it's as if to pretend that these things are normal, mm. or as if they're all there to be expected. I think we've had this kind of slippery slope form of feminism, I guess, which seems to suggest that there's like a continuum between a wolf whistle and a, 
depraved, appalling crime like this. I mean, the kind of tick that a lot of people get caught up in is to discuss all of these things in one category. You know, mm. People getting on television say, well, ultimately, this isn't about women having to change their behavior. It's about men having to change their behavior. First of all, as if that these depraved, murderous individuals you know, could just educate themselves. I mean, it's, I don't mean to make light of it, but that yeah. is the logical conclusion of what it is they're saying. Or that you have this kind of domino effect of, again, just people be, you know, being a bit more gentlemanly, that this will have a kind of knock-on effect and make these horrendous singular types of crimes less likely to happen. It's, it's ridiculous on the face of it. But also, as Ella was saying, this sort of apocalypticism in relation to this issue, this attempt to suggest that this is all of a piece, um, the attempt to suggest that, if anything, women are right to be afraid mm. whilst out and about in public, the consequences of that are going to be far more severe. It's not going to stop any of these sorts of things happening, which often have very specific circumstances. I completely agree that specific questions always have to be answered about why wasn't someone caught, why weren't they mm. vetted. If you're talking about the police, they need to be held to a higher level of scrutiny than basically anyone else who Absolutely. works in, in, in public life. Um, but at the same time, you just cannot use this as an opportunity to, to just try and make a political point out of all of this stuff because it just feels nonsensical for the points that people are making, but also it's ghoulish. It's trying to use a horrendous tragedy to push your own particular agenda, mm. even if it doesn't make any sense. And just the tolerance for that, I think is quite upsetting in relation to the discussion. Of all Ella. And also, in, I mean, if you are, if we are to ask political questions about, you know, because, you know, people who do make these arguments say, well, it's men that hurt women and, you know, there is a trend here and yes. And so when, if you unpick that, what you, what any sensible person understands is that, you know, particularly in a domestic abuse setting, men who are predatory and hurt women, whether it's that they batter them at home or they grab them in the bushes outside or whatever kind of assault is happening, it is because it's not it's not because they, you know, have just been watching too much porn or it's not it's not there's not an easy answer. Mm. It's because they view women as weaker and secondary to them. They devalue women and that's why they prey on them. And so if you then have a feminist politics that suggests that women are secondary to men, are weaker, are in need of police protection, uh, you know, for misogynistic comments in the form of hate crime, are in need of, you know, uh, regulations in the workplace to make that, as we've seen in the news over the last two weeks, you know, to ban pet names in case we get offended. If yeah. you set us up as second class citizens in need of protection, then what you're doing is agreeing with these men who view us as second class citizens. An old school women's liberation movement used to fight for the right for women to be involved in public life in all its, you know, throes and all of its complications and risks. It seems like a contemporary feminism wants to rehabilitate this idea that women need to be separate from society society, which is a sexist idea and it's not going to challenge the view. What what we need to do with men like Wayne Cousins and men who still hold sexist views is make them afraid, is make them put the, put the pressure back on them and say, you don't get to treat us like this. And all this kind of obsessing over whether it's you know relationship and sex education or whether it's getting men to come out on Twitter and say oh men are a problem like that that's going to do nothing what actually needs to happen is women need to stop being afraid and it's a it's a terrible thing that we do go out and clutch our keys it's a terrible thing that that fear is there but it's within our power to stop that fear from happening we don't need to wait for a police officer to help us with that we can do that today one of the best things i've got into in recent years has been wondrium that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. I cannot get enough of it. Wondrium is the streaming service that brings mind-blowing moments into my everyday life. 
If you're familiar with the Great Courses Plus, then you already know Wondrium. It's the same great service with now even more to learn and love. With Wondrium, we can explore thousands of hours of fascinating video and audio content. There's documentaries, tutorials, travel logs, and more. And we can find answers to questions we've always wondered about, or even those we've never thought to ask. For me, what keeps me going back to Wondrium is their programs on history and politics. It's such a brilliant resource that always keeps me engaged. Regular listeners will know how much I've enjoyed their series on the fall and the rise of China, the economic history of the world, and the Industrial Revolution. You come out of each one feeling a thousand times cleverer. I know you're going to love Wondrium as much as I do. If you sign up, make sure you use Spike's special URL so they know who sent you. Go now to wondrium.com slash spiked, and for a limited time, you can sign up and you'll get a free month trial of unlimited access. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Again, that's wondrium.com slash spiked. Sign up today. We should move on to a lighter story. The University of Kent has basically sent all of its students on a four-hour course, a four-hour module called Expect Respect, uh, where they will learn all about racism, bias, and consent. One of the main takeaways from this that people have been talking about is that it has a white privilege quiz. And two of the things you learn about white privilege are that if you are able to wear secondhand clothes or if you're able to swear freely without essentially being called a disgrace to your race, then you are enjoying white privilege. Tom, what have you made of this rather strange? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that particular example is striking. First of all, because I'm yet to witness someone, you know, taking someone to to task in the street and calling them a disgrace to their race for what it is that they might be happening to wear, Mm. like just because they're wearing some charity shop clobber that I haven't really seen. That's not a form that racism takes in my experience. (laughs) But So that's a bit strange. But also this idea that, again, that that... It seems to be talking specifically to, I guess, white middle class students, yeah. you know, wearing vintage stuff. But again, which I think it, it's just shows what a kind of distorted sort of view these white privileged things have and how much they just sort of level any sort of class questions. It's sinking in a very specific sort of paradigm, which is very, very strange. But then the whole nature of these quizzes are fascinating. Like, first of all, for, I, I believe there were 12 or 13 options mm. for um, what constituted a privilege as a white person. And the way the quiz was structured, according to how it was reported, that if you selected all of them, and you got a little gold star saying, well done, if you failed to select all of them, you'd be asked to try again. <laughs> so it's just this kind of, also this nature, of, despite the fact that white privilege is a very contested category because mm. it takes no account of class, because some of the examples people bring up, they just seem to make them up. They yeah. often don't make much sense. They're just asserted. But there's still no room for discussion on it. And actually what's interesting about whether it's this course or kind of similar sort of things that we've seen not just on university campuses, you know, the, you know, the BBC ship, allyship yeah. um, quizzes and things that people were being made to go under, is that people act as if this is entirely uncontested. They act as if it's as uncontroversial or as simple as making them do like a health and safety course or something, which is really interesting because yeah. how much these identitarian ideas have kind of been imbibed on the part of these institutions. What's also striking about it is the fact that it's almost quite quaint hearing this from a university because in recent years we've heard about in the corporate world, um, Mm. in the public sector, in the NHS, um, you know, the example in the BBC, all of these things that we've been talking about. It's a perfect example, I think, of the thing that we've been saying for a very long time, which is 
this thing that was happening on university campuses was going to spill out. And it's almost a reminder of the fact that we all, in some way, shape or form, live on a university campus now because these ideas have permeated so many of the institutions in our society. So yeah, it was ridiculous and strange and all the rest of it, but there was something almost quaint about it as well, (laughs) in that respect. (laughs) Taking the idea of uh, white privilege specifically, it seems to just flip the whole idea, the whole older ideas of anti-racism on its head, where you'd be worried about discrimination and you'd want to tackle the sources of discrimination against people. And now the suggestion is, well, if you're not discriminated against, you should feel some kind of guilt or you should feel, you know, the, the, the state of non-discrimination is seen as unusual and abnormal and something to be accounted for and explained. Yeah. Brendan O'Neill put this really well in his column this week on the white privilege issue where he said, it's like, it's like, you know, drowning a witch to see. And if she floats, she's a witch. If she sinks, she's a witch. You know, if you say, I don't, I, uh, I, you know, see race and I think that white people and black people are different then okay we understand that to be you know racist that's a problem if you say I don't see race and I refuse to judge people on the basis of the color of their skin that's a problem that's Mm. racist so you're screwed if you do and you're screwed if you don't there is you know the point you made about them taking the test again that this is just continuous tripwires you are and actually the purpose of it is to trip you up and this is the really terrible thing about university students you're going into this place where lots of lots of them will have just left home. You're starting out your adult life. It's quite a vulnerable experience to then go through this process of making you purposefully feel uncomfortable and nervous about what you're going to say around your fellow freshers and think and be overthinking what kind of conversations you have is a really a, a seriously crippling thing to, and it's a terrible idea to expect, you know, white students to be going up to their black peers and be kind of like on edge that's terrible for the black students who yeah. will be then thinking well, just talk to me normally it's it, a- exactly it just it just presents any kind of interaction between people of different races as a problem yeah as something that has to needs extra management rather yeah. than a normal conversation mm. and the, the thing about white privileges you know especially with the clothes thing i mean i don't understand the clothes thing because I thought we were all meant to be wearing rags to save the planet anyway. So, like, and as we all know, the climate crisis is a racial justice <laughs> yeah, crisis as well. Yeah. So. so you're meant to, you know, th- that's silly. But also, you know, there's, there's jokes that people have been making for a long time about privilege you know, and the idea that there's different ways of seeing different things if you're poor or rich. Mm. So, you know, like there's this whole trend now among very sort of affluent women to not use sulfates in your hair. So it's essentially not washing your hair. Really glamorous if you're in vogue, really disgusting <laughs> if you're in a council estate. <laughs> Celebrities wearing holy jeans, you know, really amazing on the red carpet, not so good when you're queuing outside Asda. So the whole idea of privilege is it's not like that it that privilege as a concept isn't real, doesn't exist. But the idea of white privilege, this inherent thing that you are presumably born with that stays with you from like womb to tomb, despite any of your uh, environmental experiences, anything that happens in your life, the context of your life is just so apolitical um, and yet is wielded now as a weapon to shut people up Mm. and as a weapon to divide people. I mean, there's a reason that white privilege has been so easily embraced by various different elite institutions is because it serves them quite nicely. It divides mm. people up. Um, it divides working class people up. It says that your interests are not the same. They're different. You probably don't like each other. That's a problem. Um, now I'm not trying to su- suggest that, you know, all of these different institutions kind of got together and said, ha ha ha, this is how we kind of divide and rule our workforces or whatever, but it does uh, has that effect. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that people cannot see that in the same way, the old racial politics was expi- explicitly designed to, you know, divide up the working class and set them against each other 
this has that effect in so many ways, shape or forms. Um, and it also, in, but whilst under the cover of kind of making class seem like it doesn't matter, mm. you know, which is another weird feature of it. The point about um, university students and just not being comfortable around each other, because this idea that white people have to be uncomfortable was a bit of a trope, mm. you know, in a lot of these sort of critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, kind of sessions. And it's just so interesting because that's just another area in which all of the previous assumptions have been turned over their head. You know, the idea of a society in which people were comfortable with superficial differences, didn't mm. think they really mattered. Um, an idea in which um, race, if we even want to call it that, is just something that's entirely incidental. The idea that you should be comfortable around another, around one another. No, yeah. these days. I mean, it's just one of those other subtle ways in which you can see that what they want to bring about, whether they realise it or not, is a situation in which it's more tense, worrying. There's a set of etiquette you have to observe around one another rather than just treating each other as human beings. And I think it's just another small example of that, really, how this just rehabilitates a level of hostility as much as anything, or suspicion, at mm. least, definitely. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.